0: How old are you Dan? Ninety. Ninety? Yeah. Goodness gracious. The youngest man I ever knew. We're driving along Bird Avenue. That's right. That's On my right is Mount St. Mary's, which back in 1980, when I entered the Marists, was the seminary. And you've just told me, Dennis, it's not a seminary anymore. Well,
1: oh, it hasn't been for a long time. No. It hasn't been. And the main chapel is only used on special occasions, you know.
0: That's Dennis Green, a Marist priest who was a huge part of my life for nine years. The Marist Fathers are a Roman Catholic religious congregation. I was one of 20 young men who entered the Marist Fathers' seminary at Mount St. Mary's Milltown in Dublin in September 1980. The same year, almost 400 men did likewise all around Ireland, joining different dioceses and religious orders. Of the 20 who entered the Marist Fathers with me, 17 would leave religious life. This is the story of three of us, who entered the Marists in 1980, and our journey from belief to unbelief. My name is Joe Armstrong. I was born in 1962, the year that the Second Vatican Council began. I remember as a boy um, attending the first English Masses, because when I was born, Mass would always have been in Latin, and the priest would have had his back to the congregation. I'm of that vintage. My friend John O'Sullivan and I were in the same class in secondary school. John O'Sullivan, I'm nearly 50 and you're nearly 50. Mm-hmm. How long have we known one another?
2: Too long, Joe. Just too long. 30 years, I'd say. Is it? No, more. 50, since we were 15, I'd say. Yeah. Or 16. So,
0: yeah, since second year.
2: What's the second year, oh, okay.
0: second year, I moved into your class in Arts School Marina. Mm-hmm. Another man who joined the Marist Fathers with me in 1980 was Declan Wynne. Okay, right, Declan. Um, <coughs> here we are in the middle of Dublin on um, the 25th of
3: April, April 2012. Twenty-two years later,
0: twenty-two years since our novitiate,
3: isn't it? Nineteen eighty, no, thirty-two. Yeah. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're older than you thought. Oh, well, that one I can. That one I, I can I, guess. I, I,
0: was, I was fifty last week,
3: and I will be fifty-six this summer.
0: You're born not only into a culture, not only into a society, but into a family. All of those influences are there, and. You absorb it, you pick it up. It's just there as a given. You don't question it. We had May altars, and we used to say the rosary at night, it would be, you know, rattled off very fast, and my dad would be kneeling down with his backside in the air, you know, sort of bent over his nose into the, the back of the sofa, and, Mary, what do we And my mother was intensely religious. I remember as a very young boy, I was in the living room at home in Donny Kearney and I was practising saying Mass and I was doing the gestures of the consecration and I suddenly became aware that my father and mother were watching me and I became mortally embarrassed and I thought, oops, they've caught me out now. And um, I remember even then as a kid thinking, "Now oh, I must kind of bury this because it's too young to be having a vocation. When I discovered this letter I was extremely embarrassed because of of the explicit faith and the naivety and the enthusiasm and the innocence. It was seventy nine, so I was what seventeen 26th of June 1979, Dear Uncle John. Dear Uncle John, I would like this to be the first letter you receive from Ireland after the postal strike. The first thing I want to tell you, and it's the only thing that's really important, is I joined the charismatic prayer meeting, and really, Uncle John, it's great. Mass. Mass. That was was boring boring and dead, is now now joyful and alive. There isn't Christ just seen seen so often. Not sure what I saw, but there you (laughs) go. Four weeks ago I joined our own parish meeting and I've been going for months to the one in our school. John, pray for him too. And for all others who are starting to know not about starting Christ to know, not about know. Christ, but to actually know him. Please, if you have him in it, pray for me too. God is alive. Jesus is Lord. Isn't it wonderful? Oh sure I always knew in my head that Jesus was God, but now it's with my heart. I hope I'm not being hypocritical. The enthusiasm the excitement seems false I like that bit it's so long been absent let's praise God night and day but I'll never give up on anyone that includes you Uncle John if you're not already in the cuckoo club God bless you praise God and write soon your nephew Joe Armstrong God bless you praise God and write soon your nephew Joe Armstrong it captures the enthusiasm that I had at the time and the faith that I had at the time daft and all though it was
1: How many young people have already warped their conscience... It was
0: 1979.
3: And have substituted... The Pope was here. The true joy of life with drugs,
1: sex, alcohol.
0: I was intoxicated by the charismatic renewal. I was 17 and I decided I wanted to be a priest.
3: Young people of Ireland, I love you.
0: I remember then going to the vocations director. I remember him saying, many souls will be saved through your ministry. And it absolutely blew my mind because it was like a confirmation of my vocation. If somebody asked me, well, what would you do if you weren't a priest? I couldn't think. You know, I really, that was it. It was the only thing I wanted to do because it was the only thing that made sense. And like, you know, who needed a, a wife or children or a house or a job? That all seemed very boring when you were an adolescent and you had a sense of thrill and setting off on an adventure following Jesus. entered the grounds of Mount St. Mary's and the, there was a grotto on the right. I don't remember that there before. I thought that was so It was there. Was it?
1: Yes. It certainly was. It was there from the, the very beginning of our presence in the place, which was 1923.
0: Nothing wrong with your memory.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> it's far enough back.
0: Do you know, this is a really surreal moment for me because... It is 32 years since I first walked on my own. out. There was an open day for young men. Oh, yes. Is that so? Yeah. The door of the seminary that was is now open.
1: Now, this is where, you see, we don't have a provincial, but you have a regional Ah, superior. That's for Ireland. Who is
0: the regional superior?
1: He's uh, David... David Cardigan. Cardigan. Ah, exactly.
0: He entered about two, maybe three years before me.
1: Yes, that's exactly. So. Uh huh. He's here. He's there.
0: Who's this then? Great. <laughs> that's great. Hello, David Cardigan. be David. Hello, are you're,
2: you're bringing somebody along. Who are you bringing along? Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs>
0: I with all the gear on you.
3: How are you? Forgive, forgive the,
0: the left hand. <laughs> David Corrigan. Is this been filmed and recorded? You minute? are being recorded. See, geez, but that's, <laughs> no, that's
2: all right. No, it's all right. Just give it up. And yes, Joe, yes. Joe what, what, what are you doing?
0: I'm just doing a little documentary about right. my experience of starting out in life. Hmm. A believer. Really? Oh, yeah. And no longer being a believer. Okay. And it's interesting to meet ye guys who are still believers.
2: Oh yeah. How do
0: you know? Good point. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and believers in what? <laughs> and practising
0: what? Well, very good questions. <laughs> These are very good questions. <laughs> My old pal John O'Sullivan and I had not only gone to school together, we also went to prayer meetings together and we joined the Marists on the same day.
2: Yeah, I'd always been a sort of religious-y type of guy. I'd been an altar boy and I remember having been really touched by old religious rituals that there was a ooh factor in them. And the whole God thing was just so obvious that because everybody believed in it at the time and I heard that there's this thing called vocation and that it's not so much that you do what you want to do but that God calls you to something and to be honest it, w- it was actually terrifying thought because i thought well that means i'm not in control of my own life that i m- i might be called to do something so i sort of realized well the only way to find out whether i have a vocation or not is to go in and check it out so i went i joined the maris really hoping to find out that i didn't have a vocation most of the 20
0: novices who entered with me in 1980 were as young as 17 or 18 Declan Wynne was one of the eldest.
3: I was somewhere in my late 20s. I must have been. I must have been about 27, 28. My father owned a business, so I had worked with him. Also worked in a few pubs in Dublin. Had tried studying commercial art. That was primarily it. Somewhere along that line, don't know how I got it, but I got this idea that priesthood might be good. I think I was at a stage in my own life that structure... Some kind of social acceptability were something I needed or wanted. And at the time, I was interested in religion. I loved reading about religion. I loved religious history, the lives of some of the, the crazy saints, things like that. Um, and at the time, I liked ritual or mystery. So I put them all together, and kind of I thought I was right.
1: We can go this way.
0: Walking around the seminary, I meet some priests I haven't seen for a long time.
1: This up here is a nice a nice room. Do you remember who that
0: uh, is? Hello, Paddy, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm good, a bit oh,
1: I'm strong, I've seen you for a few years. Paddy,
0: Jerusalem yes. Burn. how are you? Yes,
1: Are you recording, Dennis. Is <laughs> Dennis going to sing? Give us a warning. <laughs>
0: There were a lot of guys who were going to the Maris at that time. The place was absolutely buzzing.
3: The whole house, though, had that vibrant sense about it, and I think that is what kept people for a lot longer.
2: You've got 20 or 30 young fellas and some incredibly interesting, funny characters and deep characters and just a richness. A lot of the priests, too, were very cultured men. I actually started enjoying it on a day-to-day level, while at the same time always, at the back of my mind, thinking, oh, I hope I find out I don't have a vocation.
0: It was very regulated and inovitiate. Every minute was accounted for. You'd have difficulty at programming time to visit the loo. It was so tight. The, the, the office morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, night prayer, all done in the chapel. Oh, that's um. I'm, uh-huh. I'm dying to see the church... Once the heartbeat of the community, the chapel was always open. I'm shocked to discover it now has a lock. enter the vestibule at the back of the chapel, where we used to gather at night, after night prayer. We would sing the Salve Regina. It was beautiful. And then we'd go in silence to our bedrooms. So we're walking through to the sanctuary of the big chapel. Ooh! Oh, you see what's going <laughs> So the choir, the, the a wall has been built over the choir.
1: Yes, behind that there is a, the library and uh, the archives. The big
0: chapel. Unused nowadays. It's interesting because when I arrived in a we 20 novices sat on one side of the church and the scholastics sat on the other side of the church. It was a very full building. During novitiate, our first year, we had the equivalent of one month's silent retreat. And if we were having a vocational crisis, we were often encouraged to go off on a retreat. I found each retreat different. Some difficult, some joyful and some I now see as elaborate exercises of self-deception, persuading myself that I really believed that I had been called by God. I wonder if John had a similar experience to me.
2: I would always used to find the retreats hard. Yeah, you know, I used to find those difficult psychologically, but, you know, bearable, but you'd be just so bored and feel desolate or something. My memory of it now is that I used to be sort of disappointed at the end, that I didn't really meet God again, you know, or that other people meet God and I really didn't, or not in the same way. I gave them my best shot, but they were tough, yeah, they were.
0: During Novitiate, my father became very ill and died, and in fact he was buried the day before I took my first profession. with me when my father died
1: that's right I remember I remember that very very clearly mm. and I remember his opening his eyes mm. just before he died to yeah. me he opened his eyes he looked so much like it it was beautiful actually
0: so you, you've been around at very important times Apparently, for, better <laughs> for better or worse for better or worse better for better. I found life in the seminary difficult. I struggled with celibacy and obedience and I often doubted the existence of God. By February 1983, five of the 20 from my novitiate had left. Each departure always brought it back to myself. Why am I still here? Uh, One of the biggest shockers was when a priest who was on the formation staff left and I remember the superior of the time coming in and telling us I have really bad news for you and then telling us that this priest had left the priesthood and religious life and we were gobsmacked. It was just coming up to the renewal of our vows and uh, that was a bombshell.
2: There were struggles, there was you know, struggling with your sexuality and, you know, living celibately is quite difficult, especially, you know, in your 20s and 30s, when, you know, your hormones are sort of raging. And um so that was very difficult. And you'd be lonely as well. Because I was very scrupulous and had been brought up in that old style of Catholicism, I was very aware that sexuality was a very murky affair altogether, that you had to be really careful around your sexuality and that masturbation, for instance, was a mortal sin and that sex is for marriage. And so I would have had a very frightening approach to sexuality.
3: For all those years, living in a house with what, 30, 40 other guys, does not foster a lot of independence. It fosters more a sense of dependence and isolation in one sense.
0: Romantic fiction. Boy, did we ever get romantic fiction! Brother, did we ever? Get In 1985, the Gay Byrne Show ran a competition to write romantic fiction.
1: One that we have put a hot tip on is a story written by Michael Hayden from Donny Carney. Take a listen to this for controlled
0: action. Under the pseudonym Michael J. Hayden, I entered the story of a young seminarian kissing a woman in France, which caught the imagination.
2: May I kiss you, I asked, when not to have asked would have been to ignore my deepest spirit.
0: We kissed,
1: and several times again, we
0: kissed. They didn't know that my fiction was actually true.
2: Her tender lips remained pressed against mine. It was two mornings later that I received her invitation to meet that Saturday in Paris.
1: Oh, oh, I can't wait to hear what happened that Saturday in
0: Paris. That was from the pen of Michael J. Hayden in Donny Would you ever think there was so much controlled passion bottled up in Donny I mean, Donny Obedience is about submitting your mind to another person, believing that the other person's view is God's view. In fact, if anything, I probably found obedience harder than celibacy. Declan also found himself questioning the value of obedience when despite his professional qualification as a counsellor, he was told to teach religion and art at Chanel College.
3: I really wanted to work in counselling and I was told there was nothing for me. And I had said from day one, I had said I would not teach and I did not want to be a teacher and guess what? I was sent to Chanel. Mm. And in Chanel, they were so set in their ways. Everything was regimented. Breakfast was such a time, dinner was such a time, lunch was such a time... You ate what was put in front of you. The news was watched at nine. It was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into here?
0: For John, obedience appeared to
2: be easy. Obedience, yeah, that was easy for me. Because it was an incredible burden off my uh, psyche, if you like. So the idea that somebody else was in charge was great for me. Once you joined religious life, your, your life was sort of mapped out. You didn't have to think... Who would I like to be? It's like, well, wherever the order wants me to go, I'll go there. Where will I live? Well, wherever the order needs me to live, I'll live there. So it enabled me to avoid making loads of decisions. It put back the day where I would actually have to make a damn decision myself and see what it was like to make a, a decision and that the world didn't end. You know, when you made the wrong one, for instance, whatever a wrong decision is. So... So in that sense, yeah, it put off adulthood for 20 or 30 years. I didn't have to worry about the present because I had the vow of obedience, I suppose, and then I didn't have to worry about the future because I had the vow of poverty, that I didn't have to think of career, retirement plans, health, anything like that.
0: The perception might be that priestly life is a sacrificial life, and to some extent it is. But on many scores, it's also a highly privileged life. Technically, we don't have money, but... In reality, you have and are assured of having a dinner every day of your life until you die. You'll never fear that your job will be made redundant. You'll never fear not having a roof over your head. You'll never fear not being able to pay for medical expenses. There are millionaires who don't have that security. Back at the seminary, David, Dennis and I dig out the 1982 Directory of Members... Uh, You have the the list of members
2: I'm afraid I have I have them all there There
0: were 14 priests in Chanel Mm. In 1982, Uh, 83 Mm. How many are there now? Uh, Four Four Mm. And CUS 14, 15, 16 priests Oh yes Three now Dulux No, that's gone
2: Uh, During your novitiate There were close on 40 students in the house Mm. I remember that
0: Mm. Are there any seminarians now? It was September 1985, and I was desolate when one of my best friends left. And by that time, half of my novitiate had gone. As much as I'd tried over the five years that I'd been at the seminary, the teachings of the church became increasingly meaningless to me. And I was lonely, and I wanted to leave. And that December, when I went to confession... The ritual meant nothing to me. I decided to leave. I'd spent the night in tears and I told him, I said, Dennis, I've, I'm have gone. I've decided. And there was some floods of tears and I was really struck. He, he accepted it and I thought, gosh, this is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be and then he went off to talk to another priest and when he came back he had totally changed his tune he said we'd like you to wait a while on the one hand I'm flattered because he doesn't want me to go and on the other hand I'm been pulled back having made my personal choice to leave another priest interviewed me and said well you know if you go you're leaving against our advice and therefore if you subsequently decide it was the wrong decision you probably wouldn't be let back I wasn't strong enough to leave then and I did kind of cave in and I think I I really don't think that was good for me because I I then lost confidence in my judgment in my decision-making ability and then it meant that it was even harder to leave when i finally left because i was so wary of even telling some priests in case i would be sucked back in again in the seminary i discussed that time with stennis do you, i know it's a long time ago but do you remember it at all that time i mean it's a long long time ago and i would have gone um, if
1: you'd been asked to,
0: no, I had decided to. Yeah. And um, at the time you were dead against it.
1: Was I? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And, um, and I did change. I don't it.
1: remember having any reason for being dead against it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember that, no. Hmm.
0: Well, it, it's a very long time ago, you know.
1: Um, well, it's not. So long ago, but it's it. A lot of other people yeah, I met yeah, a lot of other people, and yeah. and a lot of other. Yeah. Uh, cases.
0: I remember you saying it was it was December, and I had come in mid-December to say that I had mm. finally decided mm. to leave, and um. And I remember you saying on Christmas Eve, you know, that the mm. Society of Mary was a work of God, and um, you know, that it was a religious vocation, and so on and yeah <laughs> yes. it certainly swayed me a lot
1: you yes. Know? Yes.
0: Um, and I just wonder I know you can't remember but you know with the benefit of hindsight mm. it probably would have been better to let me go at that time you know which isn't to say I didn't learn a lot by staying I did you know <laughs>
1: Yes, I'm sorry about that. <laughs>
0: I did. But, but it, I
1: don't remember, I haven't done it. You don't remember me.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: John also found that his faith was eroding. I struggled to make final profession. My moving out of faith journey was very, very gradual. My brain was always very scientific and questioning. And gradually, even the heart began to say, "Well, well, maybe there isn't a God, and does God make sense? And then I had quite strong experiences of, say, my sister dying of cancer. I couldn't spoof her. I couldn't say things that I didn't really believe in. Me and Sunday Mass, yes, I just always went. And the idea of not going was quite fearful for me in terms of it could be a mortal sin. Once or twice I purposely didn't go to see could I actually not go and feel okay about it could I trust my intellect on this one and say I know that no God would hold this against you or no reasonable God
0: I had uh, 20 counselling sessions with a a woman counsellor and it was an astonishing experience it was just amazing and a real privilege and life changing and I never cried so much in my life it was quite phenomenal God, I remember that time was so so hard, so so hard. Mm. I'd be asking different people for their view. You know, did they think I had a vocation? I asked a provincial, I asked a superior, I asked a spiritual director, and the counselor was so 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 good. She was just brilliant. And I remember she played a trick on me once, and she said, "I don't believe you have a vocation." And I looked at her aghast because I thought, I thought this was meant to be non-directive counseling and she could see I was shocked and then she said I believe you have a vocation then I twigged it you know she was playing a game and she was making the point that it didn't matter what anybody else said or thought only I and I alone could make this judgement but I had to maybe it took nine years to learn that lesson that I needed to decide for myself and I had to learn how to do that in order to leave the marriage it was four years after I made that life changing decision for myself that Declan, by now ordained, was feeling the strain of being forced to do the job that he had never wanted teaching.
3: It forced me against a brick wall, kind of really forced me, maybe to think of something that was there the whole time, but really was do I want this life for myself? So I found a spiritual counselor and a psychologist and I went to the two for practically a year and I made up my mind to take a year off after that and took the year off and never went back. And I think I knew the day I was taking the year off, I wasn't going back one way or the other. But I was determined to be true to myself and to stay would have been contradictory, so I felt I had to leave. Once I had actually said I was taking a year out, I heard more stories from other older priests saying, if it wasn't for my age now, I wouldn't be here. Or, I, I stayed until my mother died and then it was too late. Or, you know, I wish I had your courage. And I actually was very surprised at... The number of them that did say that to me. And and that made me even feel, A, I'm doing the right thing. But B, sad for those that didn't do it.
0: It would be another 16 years before John finally left in 2009.
2: In one sense, I never even had to make the decision. The decision made itself for me. So maybe it was another example of where a life-changing decision just happened almost without my control. I didn't make it, but that it was so blatantly obvious that it had to be made at that stage, that it wasn't even a risk to make it in that sense. It was, And once I left, there was no, oh, have I made a mistake? Should I go back? It was like, that is the most obvious thing you have ever done in your whole life. And it's taken you 30 years to do it.
0: But I was institutionalized. I'd never had a checkbook. I'd never had a job. I never had to find accommodation for myself. Never had to make ends meet. You know, which ordinary people have to do in the real world, age 27, and suddenly having to grow up kind of fast, you know. Oh, it was very exciting. I was thrilled. I mean, it was delayed adolescence. I do say that the first adult decision I made in my life was leaving, not joining. On my visit to the seminary, uh, I spot uh, a familiar face in a photograph. I'm seeing a beaming Father John Hannon. Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah. And why would he be hanging there? Because he's the superior general. And he was my novice master. Mm. <laughs> there you are. I'm gradually and you know what he
1: sometimes says to me and to Paul Walsh? He will say to us, what did we do wrong?
0: <laughs> is he serious? <laughs> yes, he is. Oh, he would be. He really? is indeed.
1: And because... You see, we were
0: But I was asked to kind of go a little quietly and I wasn't happy about that. Um, because, you know, it's important to say goodbye and let people know. Because people didn't know. Like, people just thought I was going off my holidays.
3: The Order did not know how to deal with people leaving. You know, I think of the day I left and after 13 years, not one person came out to say goodbye. They all sat... In the TV room having a drink and nobody stood at that door. Even my uh, brother who picked me up kind of said I don't understand that. He said you're better off out than in. It's their way of not dealing with it.
0: I never believed it would happen to me but within three short years of leaving the Marists I met Ruth. And we'll be married 20 years next August. And I almost can't imagine how empty my life would have been had I not met and married the one true love of my life. And my son John and my daughter Sarah wouldn't even exist had I not left the Marist's.
3: My biggest scare when I was leaving was, what on earth can I do? Even going back to America was a risk because I didn't have a job when I went back. Plus, there were very little resources. It wasn't you were given a cheque on the way out the door. And I was starting off at 36, 37 and had nothing. No pension, nothing in a bank account. At this stage, I know who I am. I'm confident. I'm self-assured. I'm successful Um, I'm not afraid to say I'm successful I'm gay, partner 17 years Uh, and that was part of the struggle uh, when I talked about acceptance earlier, Mm -hmm. I think the part of the struggle was acceptance of myself, the acceptance of being a priest, being single was all in one way a part of a a cover for not having to accept it Mm -hmm. Uh, and as I said, part of four years of counselling was accepting it So the more I accepted it, the more I kind of said, I don't want to live a celibate life. I don't want to have to deny myself. I really don't want to have a life where I can't have companionship. And that was all part of that journey. So we bought a house 18 years ago in the city of Seattle. And now I am one of two clinical directors of a large, large, agency for mental health, chemical dependency, employment and housing. I also paint. I do a lot of watercolours as another way of relaxing and
2: I enjoy travelling.
0: So looking back now, Mm -hmm. are you happy to see yourself as an unbeliever?
2: Oh, um, most of the time I do. Yeah, I'm not a strident unbeliever, but I'm more like feck it. There's nothing out there. It's a real pity, but there just isn't, and and that's a pity, you know. Because yeah, because you think well, ultimately, when you die, that's it, you know. So for me, it's not like yippee, I've been released from anything bad or necessarily psychologically damaging, but just the hope that I had or a dream that I had is now no longer tenable. I just can't dream it anymore.
0: Did you find it difficult or easy to discard whatever the meaning of life might be? Things like the resurrection.
3: No, that doesn't resonate with me anymore. Those concepts, you know, they're all gone. Yeah. Um,
2: formalized religion is is gone. Don't believe in regrets at all. That um, I really enjoyed my time in the Mars, That the people are fantastic, and I mean they're human as well and everything, but. You know the experiences that I've had that I would never have had otherwise.
3: If I regret anything I regret
2: going so far so long. I don't regret that I went through it. I have no great urge to see the world or to do it before I die it's like I just want to live today and you know go out for coffee and you know do the cross with my girlfriend and that's heaven.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I still feel a great affection for you and for the Marists. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. God! (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: I was very struck at what I sensed was your sadness that so many of us had left. Mm. Because you saw us as the hope of the province and of the society um,
1: I can't find the word, but not because I'm short of words that often happens but it's not not that I'm short of words exactly mm. it's that I am unable quite to name the idea the feeling that I had mm. and as I say, uh, your novice master has from time to time yeah. looked, looked at us Where said, did we go sadly wrong? and said, "Where did we go wrong?"